fellow music nerds, welcome to season two of the Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast. I am your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio here in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm a Canadian guitarist, songwriter, producer, and engineer, and I've been living and working here in Nashville for the last four years. A couple of years back, I decided to reach out to some of the amazing musicians, engineers, and producers I've met along the way to learn some of their more in-depth stories than what I'd been hearing elsewhere. So between March and August of this year, I'll be releasing a new conversation every Wednesday with someone who I feel has been involved with creating great recorded music. Feel free to reach out to me or leave comments at www.stevedawson.ca. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast for free on iTunes. Now, let's get down to another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Hey there, lovely people of the planet. Welcome to Music Makers and Soul Shakers. This is episode number 43. And I hope the summer is treating you well. Things are chugging along here in beautiful Nashville, Tennessee. And I have a great episode lined up for you today with a fabulous artist, a singer-songwriter and fiddle player, and a veteran of the industry, even though she's really, uh, well, she's only in her 30s right now, Sarah Watkins. First off, I have some shows coming up that I would like to share with you. Um, Coming up in August, I'll be out with my band uh, that includes myself and um, bass player and drummer from Vancouver. Jeremy Holmes and Liam McDonald will be joining me, and Mr. Fats Kaplan will be out with us. He'll be playing some fiddle and mandolin and probably some other things that we aren't sure about yet, which is always exciting. We will be performing around Alberta uh, through the middle of August. I'll be at the Edmonton Folk Festival and a couple smaller shows around Alberta. I'm playing the Speakeasy Garage in Calgary and the Bear Creek Folk Festival in Grand Prairie, which is the week after Edmonton, if you're in Western Canada. I hope you can make it to one of those fantastic festivals. They're large and awesome, and I'm really looking forward to being there and hope to see some of you out there. Okay, on to today's show. Sarah Watkins is uh, putting out incredible music these days as a solo artist, and I wanted to get into the process of how all that goes down with her. I've known of her music for years, because she was in the band Nickel Creek, which many, many people knew and loved and still know and love to this day. And that included her and her brother, Sean Watkins, and of course, the incomparable Chris Thiele. But Sarah's gone on to create some incredible albums under her own name, and I wanted to get the skinny on her writing and recording process for those projects and also hear some of her history with Nickel Creek. She started with with the, that band, Nickel Creek, back in the late 80s when she was eight. Eight years old. She was eight, okay? I don't know what you were doing when you were eight, but I wasn't playing in a bluegrass band. I kind of wish I was. Anyway, uh, all three of those kids grew up in California, and they were kind of under the tutelage of some of the members of a band called Bluegrass Etc. that I used to see up in Vancouver once in a while. The Watkins, Sarah and Sean and Chris Thiele blossomed into great players and well-being bluegrass wonder kids rarely translates into a career of interesting recorded work. In this case, it actually did. Nickel Creek went from being a group of kind of just like really impressive kids to a serious recording and touring machine. Along the way, they made a a couple of albums with Alison Krauss producing. 
They won a few Grammys, and then basically at the height of their career, interestingly, decided to pack it in in favor of pursuing their own solo projects. Chris Thiele went on to a whole bunch of incredible things, of course, with uh, under his own name and with the Punch Brothers, solo albums and collaborations with all kinds of interesting stuff. He's got a great album, by the way, with uh, Yo-Yo Ma and Edgar Meyer right now that's really incredible. It's all Bach trios. Anyway, back to Sarah. While, while she started making records of her own, she released three solo albums up to this point and uh, has worked with some really cool producers. John Paul Jones from Led Zeppelin, of course. Um, Blake Mills, who's gone on to produce all kinds of great records. And uh, Gabe Witcher, who many people know from his work in the Punch Brothers as well, have all produced albums of hers. And so I wanted to hear about those experiences. And Sarah has really evolved as a player and singer on her new album, which is called Young in All the Wrong Ways, and it's definitely a high point and well worth checking out. So we got into all those projects and got to touch on what's in store for the future of Nickel Creek and her current project, which is a collaboration with some amazing singers, Sarah Drose and Ifo Donovan, and they have a band together that's I think they're touring the UK and probably the States she's got a bit of uh, stuff to say about that as well thanks to everybody out there for listening and tuning in you can connect with me and the show at stevedawson.ca leave some comments there if you feel so inclined and if you feel like contributing to the show financially I would greatly appreciate that to offset some of the costs that we have Um, you can go to the website stevedawson.ca and go to the podcast page and at the top of the page and also any individual episode there is a little button you can make a donation and uh, all that stuff helps out and would be greatly appreciated all right now i'd like to tell you about today's sponsor union tube and transistor from vancouver canada they're known for guitar pedals with a focus on quality and simplicity they build durable repairable products that are as at home in the studio as they are on stage I gotta say, I use these pedals all the time in the studio and live. I've got their Moore pedal and a Sonebender pedal, and they both get tons of mileage on sessions and gigs. Great tones and the best fuzz effects going too. Check them out at www.uniontone.com. Okay, and now have a listen to my conversation with Sarah Watkins. so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thanks for asking. If we could maybe start by talking about your your new record or your latest record. Um, I guess it's about a year old at this point. Um, Not quite. It came out in July. We're, I, I'm still saying it's new. I'm still oh, okay. saying it's new. <laughs> Let's talk about that new record then. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, yeah, I've been really enjoying it. It's really cool. It's a bit of a departure from some of your earlier stuff, maybe a little bit, like it's maybe a little more electric than, than some of the stuff before, but I'm just wondering if you could tell me a little bit about, um, the sessions for it, like where you did it and, and how you worked in the studio and that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, well this, this record is called Young in All the Wrong Ways. And I feel like the process was a, was a total blend between the processes of the first record and my second record. Mm -hmm. And, um, in that, you know, my first record was, was pretty low. Um, there, there wasn't a ton of pre-production that happened. Right. We, it was a lot of like very natural arrangements that happened from the group of people that we gathered in the studio. Okay. And the second record was much more vertical where 
my brother Sean Watkins and uh, the producer Blake Mills and I um, made a small foundation footprint for the, each song, and then Blake and I would would build it upward from there with tons of overdubbing. Right. And I feel like sonically, that's way more of a departure than this record is, um, because it's it's super crunchy and there are like lots of. It is. It even kicks off with that like super crunchy fiddle thing, right? Yeah, it's really. Uh, to to me, it's far more out than what what Young and All the Wrong Ways is. And, and Young in All the Wrong Ways was uh, recorded at United Studio in Los Angeles, mostly. Very That's what nice. was tracked. I yeah. know. It was it was lovely. And um, and there was an incredible group of people who who were on most of those songs tracking. And I didn't, perf- I didn't perform many of these songs before going into the studio. Mostly oh, it was, okay. which was, that was new for me. Um, yeah. I wanted the performances in the studio to not be limited to, you know, a casual throw together arrangement that I would have done on tour or, or even if I'd put a lot of thought into it, I I didn't want to become attached to them before recording uh, to to an arrangement before recording them. Cause I, I knew that this band was going to be very special. Right. You did that deliberately then. Yes. Very deliberately. That's a cool way to approach it. And also I didn't want uh, people to hear the songs beforehand. I, like, you know, when I was growing up, touring all the time, um, especially, you know, when you, when you do nonstop touring and you, you know, make an album and then go back on the road to promote the previous record and then the new album comes out and then you start, like, there's a lot of overlap of material. And, of course, yeah. you know, you learn a new song, you are anxious to get it out there and you want to play it. And so there's, it's very hard, I think, as an audience to mark the di- the difference the difference the differences oh excuse me the differences you know it, so there's a big turning of the page I think marking uh-huh. this album it had been like four years and I really didn't want I really wanted um, some separation there I didn't want the lines blurred at all. I wanted it to be a marked uh, new time as far uh-huh. as how people perceived what I was doing, and but that so that made it uh, really, really uh, all that more lively in the studio, and also kind of I was a little scared to to sing these songs live for the first time in the studio really? because I, I I didn't want to um, I didn't want it to sound like I was still getting used to the songs, and so because of that I. 
I would do a few of those songs I would do in front of like 20 people in the little room at Largo, uh, which is like my home club in LA. And yeah, we got to talk about that too. And, uh, and you know, I do like little, I would play them all the time at my house and, but, um, but the real performances came out in the studio for the first time. How much, um, time did you spend working on the, working the song arrangements up? Like, um, you know, from the time that you first brought them to the band to the time when you're actually tracking complete takes? Was it pretty early in the process? Were you kind of like bashing through them quickly? Or was there a lot of time spent on those arrangements and those things that the band brings to the table? Well, the, the tracking happened during uh, 12 days. Okay. And um, each song I would play for them and they would kind of gather around. And I sent them demos, but I don't think anyone listened to them. And... Um, <laughs> Or if they, they did, never, you know, it's do. just like a basic <laughs> mood that you might hear for the day. Like, oh, we're going to do a slow song today. Yeah. And um, so they would just kind of gather around and I'd play the song and sing it for them on a guitar. And then, you know, I would do it a couple more times and they would gather around. And if they wanted to make a chart, they would make a chart. Or if they wanted mm-hmm. to make any notes, they would. And and um, but a lot of the a lot of the arrangements were built into the compositions. And right, right. Um, and then obviously it, it expanded from there with, with a lot more, uh, a lot of range and stuff. But, um, mm-hmm. before going into the studio, um, I, I would meet with Gabe Witcher who produced the record and yeah. I'd write the songs and he was really good at, at kind of giving lots of general broad stroke guidance. Like general layout on, of the song and, and structure and stuff like that. Uh, I mean, not, not structure like uh like we need well i yes yes in that he would say you know um i think the bridge should do something different or like i think right. i think it should be a bigger change yeah, yeah. um or things or, that a producer is supposed to do yeah but but not um not co-writing like with the exception of one song mm-hmm. um and it, it was it was really uh good for me particularly you know not having bandmates um, to right. have some feedback of, yeah. uh, you know, like some constructive criticism and to also validate things when I'm second guessing stuff, you know, like <laughs> this song is too long or does it feel like it's dragging on? And he'd be like, no, that this, this is incredibly powerful and we'll, we'll bring it out and it'll be great. And right. so, um, it was, he was a, he was a good teammate in that way. Yeah, and and you were also surrounded by people that I noticed that you work quite a bit with. I think Jay Belleros plays drums, right? And who you've uh, spoken with? Yeah, I have, and uh, I just made a record with him about two weeks ago. So I I I'm well aware of the process. And That's what fun. Was. Yeah, um, and uh, uh, now um, Gabe is producing it and obviously playing uh, on it and. Um, Benmont Tench, I notice. Uh, so there's, and, and all those guys are kind of around Largo a lot. Um, so was it kind of like a, a family atmosphere or was there like, 
you know, elements of, of new people at all? Or were these all, all people you were comfortable and had done a lot of work with before? They were all friends. Uh, right. Coming from, it's, I, I know uh, two of the other people on the record are Chris Eldridge and Paul Coert. Right. who play guitar and bass in the band Punch Brothers. Yes. And um, and they're wonderful old friends. I've known Critter, Chris Eldridge, for since I was like, I, I've known him for probably 12 years and yeah. and very well for the last 10. Okay. And um, and Paul I've known for, for quite a while. and But I, I feel like I know them from a different world, from my L.A. world. Right. And... Even though they've they've recorded with John Bryan and they've like they've been a part of this Los Angeles scene and they've worked with Jay Bell Rose as well, so it it was I have played with all of these people, but not necessarily in this combination. And right, it's um, an interesting combo. It's a weird clash of worlds because I'm a I'm a big fan of both those worlds, like that Largo world with John Bryan and all that, and and then you know of course the bluegrass scene and I I know some of those guys and and I've followed you know, that kind of music for a long time. So it does seem like an interesting clash of those worlds. But the wonderful thing is it's, it's not a clash. It's, 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 uh, it totally makes sense. I think so too. It has to do with musicianship rather than, Mm -hmm. um, background. And also, um, you know, everyone on this, on this record has deep appreciations for, um, what they have commonalities in terms of what they love what really right. affects them and, and what they find compelling. And, you know, I think that's what connects me to them and, mm-hmm. and them to me. And I think it, what it's what connects them to each other and as, right. you know, big fans of each other and, and sure. just, uh, you know, that, that musicianship bond. And, mm-hmm. um, it was, it was really, really special to get to feel that charge yeah. uh, in the studio. So did you find working with somebody like, say, like Jay, for example, who's like super creative and can kind of steer things in a certain direction by his, um, well, his ability, but also his creativeness. Um, did that sort of have like take on a life of its own? I've been in situations where there is a very heavy handed anchoring singular person who you just feel like, oh, they're, I guess, you know, there's no taking the steering wheel away from them and nice. they will decide what's <laughs> happening. And yeah. I've been in situations where, um, I have been, you know, the, the total boss and that people are, you know, just, just playing what I, what I asked them to play. And that's not really exciting yeah. either because that's not, right. that's not why, that's not why you want people there. Exactly. I'm not that I could just overdub in that case. You know, I want, I want, right. I want these people to play with each other. And, yeah. and I, I, I really feel lucky that that there was this um uh this very band feel in the studio that it feels you, like that you don't often get when when you're just kind of coming together for uh a week and a half you know sometimes right. sometimes that can be hard to do and and um you know i think that's a little bit of a testament to how well everyone was suited to this mm-hmm. material and it, it, it just worked really well, you know, and that has that has a lot to do with picking the right people. Yeah. Uh, and we we really labored over the right group of people to 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 be yeah. on this studio and be uh, right. be on this session. And um, you know, so it, somebody like it worked. Somebody like John Bryan, who has a real sound of his own, but also like you know, he's a he's a producer 
uh, as well. Uh, how was it with him in the studio, just like strictly as a musician? Like, did he have a huge mountain of gear there? And like, <laughs> he, he, uh, he, he is really generous, um, and yeah. had, has been nothing but supportive to, uh, to us, uh, to me and to my friends. <laughs> he, yeah. he brought a, a ton of gear to the studio, not for him to play, but uh -huh. for us to use. Before oh, he was on the studio, on, on the session, he was moving from one studio to another. He thought he was going to be set up at, at United like the week after our session ended. So he just brought his stuff over early and, yeah. uh, and we got to play a bunch of, or just kind of have a bunch of guitars in the room and some really yeah. weird keyboards and things that, you know, <laughs> a lot of things we didn't use and a lot of things that, that were, um, really exciting to have around and mess around with and that affected yeah. the record a lot. And, um, he, uh, uh, he, as far as being produced, he, he kind of likes to be, and I found this to be the case with some people who are generally the in charge ones. A lot of times uh -huh. they like to be told what to do. Right. It's I a kinda, little bit, I kind of know what you mean. It's kind of freeing and they get yeah. to, you know, serve another vision. And I think, yeah. uh, not that we were, you know, telling him what kind of solo to play or anything, but you know, um, it's not a problem to say, um, is there a different sound that we can get for the guitar? Can we do this? What about doing a little plicky plunky instead of this kind of thing? And, right. and immediately malleable. And that's the kind of, that's the kind of, of guidance that was happening through the whole session. Just like, um, plinky plinks, uh, you know, plinky plunks, um, <laughs> you know, John Bryan, plinky plunks. Uh, yeah. But he, 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 we didn't really intend him to be on as much of the record as he ended up being on because oh, really? okay. like you said, he's, he's got a really strong musical personality and we didn't yeah. want that yeah. to color the record too much. Right. And yeah, I, I, I know what you mean. Like, that's kind of what I, what I was almost getting at in a way. Like, do you feel like you have to rein that in a little or is he just totally like willing to kind of blend into the background, so to speak, even though there's little John Bryany moments that I hear on the record it doesn't take over ever really. I'm but so glad to hear that. Maybe that's kind of his, maybe that's his specialty or maybe you guys just like handcuffed him. <laughs> I mean, a lot of it has to do with what you use and the, the choices yeah. that you, yeah. that you, that you make in mixing and all of that too. Right. Of course. Um, yeah. He, he came by a lot, just kind of dropped by in yeah. case we wanted to use him because he, uh, loves the studio and was kind of yes. like, he would just kind of like wake up for a few hours and stop by and, um, <laughs> have some dinner and drink some wine. And then, uh, you know, if we wanted him, then he'd play on something. And if we didn't, then he would just kind of like right. hang out and talk. So was the was the core band there the whole time? Yeah, uh, like tracking every day, and you you, you had uh, you know a, a group of what like four or five people there that were really the the core, I guess. Yeah, the core band was um, was Paul Coert on bass, Critter Eldridge on guitar, um, Jay Bellrose playing drums, 
Um, Gabe played some guitar on some stuff. And then uh, on, on keys, there were uh, there was Ben Montench and t- also Tyler Chester, who okay. came in and out. Right, right. And, uh, and then John was there some. And, yeah. uh, and my brother played guitar on a song. But it was, it was mostly those, like, what was that, like four, five guys who were there yeah, every yeah. day. And, nice. um, so were you working kind of at a song a day pace, basically? It sounds like if you were in there about 12 days. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah, you know, I feel like it was faster than that. <laughs> and um, I think we left the studio with, we spent like two days, we left with some like mixes, some rough mixes. Right. And um, I think we did like, I think it was over 12 days, so we were probably in there for 10, 10 or right, 11. Okay. Um, that's very reasonable. But it, it was... That's and, a nice pace. And there was one song that we tried to... There were two songs that we sort of started and tracked but mm. didn't use. Um, right. And and we would we would do the song generally. Like I said, like I would play the song for the guys like two or three times. And people would sort of figure out which instruments they wanted to play, which guitars. Um, Jay would figure out what kind of, of drum treatment he wanted to use. Yeah. Um, and then the engineer would, uh, Mike Rosante would, would, would figure out the mic situation and, right. and, and adjust microphones, figure out what kind of vocal mic we wanted to use. And yeah. everybody was in the main room and I was in an isolation booth where I could see everybody, but, mm-hmm. um, to sing or, and, or play fiddle. Uh, and we would generally, it was like somewhere between the third and the seventh pass that <laughs> would be the great, like the, the take that we yeah. used. Yeah. I know that feeling. And, sure. um, and, you know, delightfully, uh, there would, there would generally the 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 great band take would be a pretty good vocal like it's okay. it's it's it, it's so strange isn't it how like that arc happens for everybody and and you'll totally. notice that that it all Although it's kind of miraculous if it's all at the same time i yeah i i guess so i i find that it um I, it, it worked out well on this album where it uh-huh. it they're not all live vocals but the um we would we would start with that vocal that was on the track and then i would do like three or four more passes with that yep. band take. And then we would just move on for in those cases where there were, there was the overdubbing. Um, it was still in, in the moment of having that performance. And so yeah. it was the best singing recording singing experience I've ever had because it, it felt very much like I was still in the moment with that band and, right. um, not coming back a week later and trying to get in the zone or like recreate uh, yeah. the feelings of all that, yeah. you know, uh, totally. it was, it was the vocal sounds are killer too. Like, um, I was wondering about that, whether that was something that you'd spent a lot of time on or if they were kind of done live, but it sounds like it was sort of a combo of, mm-hmm. of both. And then like a tune, like one last time I think is really interesting. Cause it's kind of like, it's like a straight up well, or not straight up, but it's like a, it's a definitely a pop song, but then it's got that like, funny little bluegrass head that happens through, throughout it yeah. as well. Uh, is that something that you kind of like feel that you've, you know, you, that you want to throw in there for, for keeping in touch with that side of, of what you do, or is it just something that happened? Yeah. Well, that, that song, you know, I mentioned before that none of the songs really were performed live much beforehand. That mm-hmm. song is the exception because I wrote okay. that with my friend, John Foreman years ago. And 
kind of wanted it to be on my my second record, Sun Midnight Sun, but it just didn't really fit, or we couldn't figure out a way to make it fit in. Um, and when we were putting together the material for this album, uh, it, it just seemed to fit this grouping of songs really well and okay. uh, and serve a purpose in the collection. Like there's yeah. there's nothing else like it, but um, so it seemed a little bit like a breath of fresh air in some ways, right. and also. Right. Um, a little cheeky in the same way that, that a lot of the other songs are. <laughs> and so that that's the song that um, that Sean came in and played some some guitar on. And, okay, that um, was, so that's Sean, Sean playing that part. Yeah. You just missed my kiss. Don't save my number and you won't ever find me. It's a really cool part and it works really well, but it does. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I wondered if it was something that you intentionally put in there, like as a as a bit of a nod and wink to to the to the bluegrass days. The song wasn't arranged for that. It it was right. kind of arranged um, originally, just hearing it only as that, like because I think largely because that was closer to what I was playing like five years mm-hmm. ago when I wrote it. It just it just kind of works. It worked out well. I never really wanted to change it. Just kind of felt like that was the the right feel for it. Yeah. Speaking of your bluegrass um, background, I w- wonder if we could talk a little bit about where you came from and all that. Um, Absolutely. Are, are you a California native originally? Yes, I grew up in okay. North San Diego County, um, uh-huh. and uh, and now I live in Los Angeles. And so, mm-hmm. like, you started out shockingly young i would say um you know playing with with um nickel creek uh i don't know what you were like 10 or something or or eight what, how old eight okay so uh tell me like what was what was your childhood like like i know that you guys kind of hooked up through through the bluegrass etc guys who yeah. i used to see up, up in canada a lot when i was when i was starting out um they used to come up to vancouver oh, cool. and play up there um, so I know who they are, but, um, and I know you guys were taking lessons from some of them, but, but was, you know, what was your, what was your childhood musical background? You must've been playing super young. Yeah. I, you know, I think it, it's not unusual for kids to be in little, in bands when they're young, even that young, yeah. you know, and yeah. I, we grew up going to bluegrass festivals because our parents, um, Sean and I, and the Thiele's, Chris, Chris Thiele and his dad, his mom yeah. and dad and his brothers. They they all just kind of like jumped on it in, in in a really supportive way where our family vacations transitioned into going to bluegrass festivals, and you know I so so you guys were family friends to start with with the no anyway okay. we we knew each we knew each other because we would all go see bluegrass etc play every Saturday night and um, so they were just a local band for you guys like they yeah were, they, they okay. played they played in a pizza parlor every Saturday night for like really four hours they did like two or like three or four sets
We started going there because my brother was taking piano lessons and okay. from Mrs. Moore. And Mrs. Moore said, you should go see my brother, my son play. You should go see my son play oh. at, at that pizza place. And we started going and it was a you know lovely community of people. It felt like it was hundreds, but it was probably like the same 50 or 70 people. And, <laughs> right. um, and you know, I was two when we started to go there, two or three. And yeah. we just kind of like bounce around from table to table and say hi to all my parents, you know, all the friends that we made there. And um, Sean and Chris started taking mandolin lessons from John Moore. And I started, right. and I, um, when I was four, John Moore, who uh, is from, is in, in the band. He was sort of the mandolin player and the band leader. Yeah. He, yeah. they be, they all became family friends from us, with us. And we would go camping together. And John um, asked me to sing a song when I was four. And so I sang a song I learned, you know, in, in, oh, I sang Long Black Veil. Uh, nice. That murder ballad. <laughs> and, uh, and then he'd get me up to sing songs I learned in kindergarten when I was older. And then. Um, and eventually I, I started taking, uh, Suzuki lessons because, mm -hmm. uh, Dennis Kaplinger wouldn't teach me fiddle until I had some, some foundation. And, oh. and then eventually he, he started, we convinced him to start teaching me fiddle. He was a great, great teacher. He and John both were incredible, um, they must have people been, to learn from. Yeah. Yeah. Like they must've been very... I, I don't know. It's hard to imagine, but like you guys were so young and excelling, like at such a young age, they must have had a big part of that. I mean, I can't imagine. Yeah, I mean, they 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 treated us like adults, and they weren't right. impressed when we played fancy things fast. Like they would. <laughs> one of the the things that they would say is, "If you can't play it slow, you can't play it fast." You know, because I think the temptation is to just blaze through things when you're a kid and play everything sure. as as fast as possible, and and. An audience will applaud that because you're a cute kid playing fast, but they yeah. would say, play it slow. See if you can pull that off, which is much harder. And right. um, and they sort of taught us the basics of stage etiquette and um, practicing and, you know, writing your own solos. And and um, it, they were they were incredible mentors. And we would just go to bluegrass festivals and enter band competitions and individual fiddle contests. That's how I know Gabe Witcher we, 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 they would go to festivals too, the Witcher family. And oh, really? so okay. like, I remember entering fiddle contests with Gabe and we would all, um, you know, play football on Saturdays yeah. and like we had wonderful, um, it's just how you community of people. Yeah, it was great. It was, right. it was like camp all the time and, or, you know, a few times, a few times a summer at least. And, yeah. uh, I really, I have nothing but fond memories of, of all that time. Lots of dust. But um, but lots of good <laughs> memories too. Uh, were you were you exposed to or listening to anything other than bluegrass at the time, or was it just like an all encompassing thing that you were into? It was uh, the, the 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 range of of music that we heard growing up was like there was some Celtic music in there. My parents listened to the Birds or the Beatles or okay. a Flying Burrito Brothers, but it was all okay, kind so of in like the country bluegrass vein.
There's also 80s right. country happening. Randy Travis, George Strait, that kind of stuff. Okay. Um, the Judds. <laughs> and yeah, yeah. Um, and that kind of stuff. But I like I was maybe in fourth grade when I mm-hmm. heard about the Backstreet. Oh, no. I heard, what did I hear about? I heard about um, <laughs> New Kids on the Block. I might, yeah. There's a girl in my class that had a had a new kids on the block shirt and I was, I was like, what's that? And then I like heard about rap as well, which was far, it was way too old to be finally hearing rap about that. It exists. (laughs) Like I, I did live in quite a artistic bubble, but like you just never really heard much else other than country and bluegrass and a little bit of like Beatles and, and stuff. But but I mean, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean that stuff like kind of definitely informs your, your songwriting probably right like like the burritos isn't exactly traditional country that was that was getting a little more outside the box for sure i didn't start songwriting till i was in my 20s actually but oh really okay it helped um and when i was in my teens you know there there were things that were very progressive for bluegrass but not for my friends you know right like, right i i was baffled that my friend who listened to pop music like I would play Ricky Skaggs in Kentucky Thunder and I thought it was like the most intense hardcore thing I'd ever heard. And <laughs> she was completely bored and, and right. perplexed by it and right. could not see any parallels whatsoever. I was trying to relate to her. Back at Susie's long and tall sleeps in the kitchen with a feet in the hole. Hey, back at Susie. Oh, back at Susie. Hey, back at Susie. Oh, back at Susie. What were the things that were really exciting to you, like as a kid learning the fiddle? Uh, you know, what what recordings were the ones that really kind of got you going? Stuart Duncan was was sort of the the, the king. Stuart Duncan and Byron Berline. Uh, okay. Byron Berline is an Oklahoma fiddle player who lived in Los Angeles, and he was a big um, a big influence and, and took a bunch of us under his wing and, and he would you know he would teach us and, and uh, stay up late at festivals jamming with all of us kids and it, he was great. Yeah. yeah. Stuart Duncan, anything uh, the Nashville Bluegrass Band was killing it. Yeah. Uh, when I was you know in my early teens and. Uh-huh. Um, so anything by them, and then there was Strength in Numbers, of course, which was a yeah. like an all-star band that that uh, blew the doors off everything, and and then you know everything that those guys were a part of, and and, and, and there were some beautiful uh, melodies that came from from bands like Skip Hop and Wobble with Jerry Douglas and totally, Russ I love that record. And, yeah, yeah, just beautiful things that 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 we really took to heart, um, yeah. and that was that was. So, I mean, it wasn't bluegrass in the way that a lot of people think of bluegrass. It, it was um, starting to expand a lot at that point. Yeah, the nine, the the '80s and '90s were were big time for that music to to kind of 
take on some new life and kind of go in some new directions. And people like Tony Rice were covering, he was covering Randy Newman. Like I didn't know that I was listening to Randy Newman songs until I was, you know, um, I think it's going to rain today. Like things that, that were um, lyrically totally different, totally outside of, of what bluegrass people can write. And also quarterly, um, um, harmonically so much, so much more complex. And that all, I thought it was all in kind of in the scope of bluegrass because it was Tony has a way of taking those kind of songs, right? And like making them seem like traditional bluegrass tunes. It just makes sense coming out of him that it's all coming yeah. coming from him. And totally. uh and it and so then when when, you know, my our friend Glenn Phillips, who was in this band Toad the Wet Sprocket that, that we'd listen yeah. to a lot, uh when I say we, I mean like Sean and Chris and I and Nickel Creek. And um, you know, he ended up turning us on to like Oh no! You need to listen to Randy Newman "Sail Away." You need to listen to um, to uh, Nilsson uh, Schmilson, Nilsson Schmilson, the Harry Nilsson. Yeah, yeah. You need to listen to uh, you know all these all these things that that ended up totally grabbing us, and and we were one hundred percent ready to to mm-hmm. be blown away by. Was that sort of like in your teen years you got into that kind of stuff? Like you obviously, yeah. you probably weren't listening to those kind of things when you were like eight, right? No, that was, so we listened to, got kind of got to know Glenn in, in, in teen, like late teen years. Um, okay. And uh, yeah, before that, my brother's four years older than me. So he was listening to other stuff, like radio okay. stuff that I wasn't, that I wasn't, uh, yeah. like, like Weezer was happening and right. I'm not sure who else, like Nirvana was happening and. And, yeah. and, uh, so there, there was, there was stuff around and we were starting to, to the world was seeping into our bubble pretty, right. pretty, pretty well. But, but, uh, we had a lot of catching up to do. And, um, <laughs> by the time we were like in our, our, by the time I was in my late teens, it was, it was, um, we didn't quite, I, I think there was a, there were several years, many years in Nickel Creek where we were, we were really trying to figure out how to make um, music that was really relevant to us on our instruments. And, and so we, you know, there's some awkward recordings where we're mm-hmm. playing things that, you know, we're, we're still figuring it out. It feels very adolescent, especially feel, particularly you, on the second Nickel Creek record, the this side record. We just oh, didn't okay. know what to do. Like we were, we thought we did, but, it, but listening back, it's so adolescent and, and. <laughs> well, you were probably what 12 no 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 by that time so like the second the second like like Allison Krauss produced like the proper recordings we were like 20 oh I see okay no the kid records I'm like we were kids whatever that's fine but um but when we were I started to get embarrassed in in like when I was like 20 
so where where do you draw the line between it being a kid record and it being a not kid record? Where does that happen? Uh, well, we made a lot of of house recordings before yeah. being on Sugar Hill Records. I think the first record that we made on Sugar Hill, Alison Krauss produced. She that was the, the, the one called Nickel Creek, right? Yeah, and that one, I was 17 when we started making it. and Okay. And so I, I think everything before that is 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 total. I'm, I'm okay with it. Like we were, there were there were tapes and CDs that we made when we yeah. were, you know, nine. When I was nine, eleven, we made a cowboy <laughs> record, like a kids cowboy record that was unfortunate. Right. And then little things <laughs> like, and it was like <laughs> reel to reel in the Feely's backyard. And then there was an ADAT recording that we made. In the backyard? Like yeah. out, you recorded outdoors? He had, that's, well. Like, that's he, pretty cool, actually. Not like outside. It was in a shed, but yeah. Oh, okay. It, but there were holes in the windows and snow outside. It was really cold. We would like record. <laughs> we were recording in this like backyard shed. Um, yeah. Maybe it was like a divided garage or something, but there's, yeah. you know, the windows were single pane and I remember that they were broken. And so oh we were wearing like puffy jackets <laughs> and, you know, like Where was this? really like, what, trashy what? headphones with tape, like all over them. Um, yeah. In Idlewild where the Feelys lived in their backyard. And Chris's okay. dad, Scott, who played bass with, bass with us at the time, yeah. would record us. That's basically how you made those first records. Well, that's how we made our first tapes, like our little okay. kid tapes. Right. Uh, when we were like nine and 12, nine and yeah, 10 and stuff. And then we made like a, you know, quote, proper recording with that kid, the little cowpoke, like children's cowboy record. And then there were probably a couple others before we we did the uh, the Sugar Hill release. So before the Sugar Hill one, did you kind of, did you at all feel like, it wasn't quite right. Like it wasn't no, really no. what you wanted to be doing or anything. No, no, no. Or were you you were fully into it? Everything we made at the time, we were totally into. Okay. Um, and and we were we were absolutely. It, you're in the moment, which you should be when you're when you're making a record. Totally. You know, you should be stand be able to stand completely behind it. And yeah. um, and we we to, I think we totally did for the most part, with the occasion. You, you know, without you know, of course, we there would be like. I would get embarrassed by a solo or something like that. Like there's always something you score at. But as far as like the overall statement that we were all saying, we felt good about it when we were done. Yeah. And, and, uh, but you know, it's just the, and I'm willing to give the grace to, Oh yeah, we were kids. That's fine. And, but it's just the stuff that, that feels, um, like that second record is really the one that, that I, I can sense, um, us, trying to figure it out a little bit. I could sense us searching and not really knowing exactly where we're standing. And I don't mean to take away any enjoyment that people have from those records because um, they definitely represent a time. And I'm so glad that we did them. But just knowing myself now and knowing, um, like thinking back a little bit on that, I, I I can, you know, like when you see a picture of yourself 
And some people might be like, oh, that looks great. But you can tell something is off. Like right. you can tell that like, oh, no, that's that picture when I was eight and I had just peed my pants. And nobody knows, but I know and I can see it in my eyes. Like that's, yeah. it's that kind of thing uh, that, I, that I think back on occasion on like parts of, of, of some of those songs. I hear you. Okay. Uh, and so, so f- you, you, you did a, a series of those recordings and then, and then this deal with, with Sugar Hill comes along and you start to work with Alison Krauss. Uh, mm-hmm. how did that come about? Like, did, is she somebody that you met like at bluegrass festivals or something or we first met the- Alison? She was, I think 16 at the time and she was mm-hmm. playing with, it was just union station at the time. I, I don't think yeah. it had become Alison Krauss and union station. Okay. And Allison Brown was playing banjo with a band at the time, Tim Stafford. And she came to the festival and it was a really big deal because this is just a local Southern California festival. And, um, and she was just starting to, to really get some momentum. Yeah. And Byron Berline, uh, that fiddle player I mentioned, he got her to, um, come to his campsite and listen to a bunch of us kids play. And so there is a video, there's a home video of, yeah. of a bunch of us just playing fiddle, basically for, like in a semicircle facing Allison and Byron. And you can just see them laughing and like pointing at us and being like, look at that kid, <laughs> look what they're doing. And, um, and uh, that was when we first met them. Okay. And then, uh, or met her. And I think she claims to have been aware of us after that. Um, but we next came in contact with her when we were playing at the Ryman for a part of their bluegrass series. We were opening for a band that um, I think uh, one of her bandmates was playing it, like Dan Temensky or, or Tony Rice oh, okay. or something, like was playing it in a band. And we were opening, and she and Ron yeah. Block came down to see them. And um, after our set, after our opening set, they came backstage and, and were really complimentary, and she... And we, we were trying to figure out who to ask to produce our record. And we, we couldn't really f- settle on the right person. And so we thought, yeah. man, I wonder if she would do it. And, and she did. And, um, so you just asked her. I mean, I think we didn't ask her then and there. But mm-hmm. um, I think maybe we had had like a booking agent at that time. And maybe we got yeah. them to, or our manager. And we asked them to, to ask her. And, right. um, and, it, and she said yes. And, uh, and it was incredible. We learned so much from her. So was she kind of like godlike to you almost at that point, like being like an incredible vocalist and being a fiddle player? Like you must have looked up to her in a big way, right? Yeah, I did. I we all we all did. I think you know she was making legitimate records that sounded beautiful, like sonically yeah. gorgeous. Um, yeah. Her career was super strong at that point and so she was she was very like iconic in many many ways also kicked our butts in did she in yeah in in that how precise she was i mean we were feeling right. like we were pretty precise in the studio already like we, we could be really hard on each other in the studio 
yeah. and hard on ourselves. And and she brought that to a whole new level really? in, in some ways, not in 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 any kind of 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 harsh or mean way. She's hilarious and incredibly kind and generous and wonderful. But just yeah. in in you know, you know, try try the solo like trying trying messing around with different picks, different corners of picks. Really, really um, scrutinizing the the details of the sound, um, yeah. constructing solos, uh, putting a lot more thought into recording than than we had in the past. Where I think we didn't really experience, uh, we didn't have that kind of contrast between our live performances and our right. studio experience until yeah. until working with her, and and that was eye opening and. Um, and really good to be challenged in that way. When you come back down I keep looking up Awaiting your return my greatest fear will be that you will crash and burn and I won't feel So did she have you guys like overdubbing stuff instead of playing live as a band? Was it done that way because she was so precise and and It was and oh, detail yeah oriented? At, at that point I don't know what her process would be these days but at that point it was all isolation and mm-hmm. um, and yeah there was a lot of overdubbing. And and vocally like did you learn a lot from her um you know, was she able to suggest things and, and give you pointers about recording vocals? Because she she was she was a seasoned uh, you know recording artist at that point, and and you were relatively a, a newcomer, even though you'd been doing it a long time. Totally newcomer, absolutely. Yeah, I, I we learned a lot about harmonically. Uh, I I you know I, I think blending and and just really thoughtful harmony parts mm-hmm. uh, and and that kind of thing. As far as singing, I I had I didn't really become comfortable singing until until I was about twenty three or twenty four. I was mm-hmm. starting to become more comfortable singing, but um, I I mean I, I think that the take that she had was really good contrast from what I was doing live. But I think mm-hmm. it 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 kind of scared me, um, mm-hmm. and and made me think that I had to sing quietly all the time. Because the way that the, uh. that the studio, and I think I just didn't verbalize it very well. I, I was, I was. Was she encouraging you to sing really quietly? No, it was just like I would stand up to the mic and oh, it was really loud. So I oh, would right. sing okay. quietly. I would sing quietly. Okay, yeah. And so it, it just, just the nature of of the recording techniques altered my performance. And you know, like looking back on it, it could have just been me reacting and not saying, "Hey, can you turn my vocal down." You know, right, and, right. and and just the <laughs> like the sort of like or feeling feeling just the the newness of of it all, uh, right. because it was the first time in like a real studio and the first time working with these professionals and all that stuff. And so I think mm-hmm. I I probably could have learned more if I had if I had have I had asked more questions or been a little bit more proactive. With well, just what experiencing, I was thinking. just experiencing that situation would be such a great learning thing for somebody at your age at that time. Yeah, the con. Though, yeah, you know. exactly. And there's a lot to be said for just the contrast, experiencing something that is totally different yeah. than what you're used to. And yeah, and I think you know 
dynamic range was something we hadn't explored much at all before then. Right. And um, oh, interesting. And so it was it was very eye opening in that way. And then and then you worked with her again on the next record, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, this side that was the next one that came out, right? Mm-hmm. At that point, it seems like you guys started to kind of veer more like away from the traditional side, I guess, to me. Was that something that you were consciously doing or, or was Yeah, we were know, listening song to selection new, wise. We and, were listening yeah. to new things and we were, you know, listening to like Stephen Malkmus and right. and uh, and a lot of a lot of things that were, you know, songwriting and vocally different different treatments and different uh, approaches and and um, you know we would we got together with her and we would just play her stuff. She's like, what are you listening to? What's exciting? And so we would we would, you know, kind of up do this little update. This is what we're doing now. This is what <laughs> this is what's exciting to us. And and yeah. um, you know, we tried to make it work on our instruments. And and so we explored options that way and and mm-hmm. different ways to be percussive and and all that. Some of which and worked she, and some of which didn't really. Right. Work. But um, and was she was she really supportive with that whole yeah. side of things? Oh, that's totally, cool. Totally. Totally. Yeah. Do you feel like both of those records reflect the band really well at that time? I think they reflected what we were. Yes, yes, I do. Um, mm. The first record we learned a lot from at, at that yeah. process, and I think we we then went out to represent that kind of thing live. Right. We yeah learned so much. We definitely didn't come into pre-production sounding like that, but we learned a lot through uh-huh. the process that that ended up being you know what we sounded like, and then the second record was probably more representation of what we actually sounded like at that point. But yeah, probably. I mean, they were much more precise and like uh-huh. well-groomed than our live our live performances, but but we we wanted it to be precise. We you know, we we yeah, were sort of in a well-groomed era where like, you know, in your yeah, 20s totally. you want things to be precise and perfect. Right. Yeah. And you can afford the time and the energy to to focus on that kind of thing, and totally. and obviously it, it was working because because those were really successful, right? Like yeah, it, it works. wasn't like you were putting all this work in and and it wasn't paying off or anything. It was really like you guys were you know winning Grammys and things like that. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, it, it was it was uh it was great. <laughs> Tell me about the trajectory of the band and what, and what made you guys at the point that you were at, where, which was basically like, especially considering the what kind of band you were, which was, you know, like a bluegrass instrumentation band. You guys were incredibly successful and kind of at the same time decided to essentially call it quits, even though you didn't really call it quits. But but you walked away from it in whatever year it was, 2006 or seven or something. Uh, what was... What was that decision all about? Well, Why Should the Fire Die was the third record that we did. Right. Um, and that that was, um, so we didn't decide it until after that record. Um, so that record was was produced by Eric Valentine in Los Angeles. And yeah. that was an incredible process. Blew everything wide open. And, mm-hmm. um, and that was the first record 
that, um, you know, when we looked back two or three years later that we were like, okay, this is the kind of band or even when we were making it, we, we could feel that this is, that we had like reached a place that we were, uh, it felt like a summit of, of sorts. Right. Okay. And, um, and we could feel it when we were making it. And I, I mentioned the second record felt a little adolescent. I, yeah, you know, that yeah. maybe that, maybe we felt like that kind of, you know, you can kind of sense when you're not on completely stable ground and something about who we were all becoming individually and, and our writing and, uh, and how we were working together as a band, it felt like we had finally come to a place where it it solidified. Um, uh-huh. And um, how was how was the process for that record different from the Alice and Krauss records? Were you it's completely different? different it's completely different. Um, every producer is going to be different, of course. But um, yeah. you know, I mean, there was there were two weeks of of maybe maybe it was just one week of, of pre production um, in his studio, and he was learning how to make our instruments because he had never really worked with our instrumentation before. And so we were, we okay. were figuring out, you know, the best way to record and, and mapping yeah. out the songs and figuring out what we needed and all that. And, uh, and so that was a learning process. And then, and then, um, and then we recorded a lot of the stuff in, in a live room with baffles. Um, yeah. and I overdubbed a lot of times I just sing like the scratch vocal for them, mm-hmm. for the song and then fiddles a loud instrument, it leaks and, uh, I didn't yes. want to mess up the band, so a lot of times I would be in isolation, and um, and they would track the foundation, and then I would I would sing a scratch vocal for everybody, and then uh, overdub fiddle later, and right. um, and then we Who's, would. Who was playing bass on that on the on that record? Mark Schatz. Oh, that was Mark. Okay, mm-hmm. so he and he was he was touring with you and everything at that point. Too, yeah, he right? had been touring with us at that point. Yeah, okay. and. Um, and I, you know, I we, we we were writing together on that album for the first yeah. time, and and that was really going well. And and um, but there was what was def- that process like? Was that were you guys all contributing pretty equally, or how were you writing for that? It was project? very. It varies by by who. I think on that on that album, it varied by who brought the song, um, uh-huh. and like so, the person who kind of started the idea would generally have the most to contribute. Uh, and, and then the rest of us would, would help shape it and, uh, arrange. And, um, Mm -hmm. but we would, we, we stayed up at Chris's house in San Francisco and would write and, and then we came, Chris came down and we stayed at my brother's house in Carlsbad at the time. And we would write and, you know, I, I remember vividly just being around Sean's bonfire in his front yard, um, mm-hmm. drinking scotch and like writing, why should the fire die and singing it and playing through it and, and um, yes. talking through, talking through just life, you know, what was happening at, our, yeah. at that time. And yeah. I remember, I remember in in the studio, thinking, "I wonder how long we're gonna do this," <laughs> because at that point, it had been eighteen, like or what, like sixteen years or something like that, and it was our whole lives, and it was yeah, it was the no only thing that we all had time for. We had been touring um, in a bus pretty much, you know. I hadn't had more than a month and a half off in like 
five years. Holy shit. And um, how, how old were you at this point? Like were you, you were in your mid twenties or something? I was 23. Right. Okay. So like you're, you're a kid still. 23, basically. 24. Yeah. I think I was 23, 23 right. or 24. And then, yeah. Uh, were you feeling burnt out by it all or was yeah, it still exciting and I, fun? I, it was still exciting and f- it was still exciting because we felt like we were, we were nearing the summit um, and, and, and in something that, that would really felt, uh, substantial for, for us. And, yeah. um, but I think there was, there was a fatigue of, am I going to do this my whole life? Like, is, is this, right. is this going to be our, all, all, what, what all of us do for our whole lives? And if so, if not, then, then where, when, when is it, when are we going to take a break? And what yeah. is that going to look like? And I think we all probably were, were thinking around those, about those same kind of thing where, you know, if we were ever going to do solo records that we invested ourselves in or worked in mm-hmm. other bands or did other projects, Nickel Creek would have to be put on the shelf because right. that was, at that point, that was everything. I mean, it was all encompassing. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. think Chris had a couple other projects that he would squeeze in the holes, but he worked he, I, I, I couldn't function the way that he was, like he was, he was working really, really, really hard and, and every, you know, filling in every hole. And, and he was in a relationship as well that he was trying to, to work within. And I think that it was just, um, I, I, we were touring three weeks on one week off. Um, and like three weeks solid and one week off. Yeah. For oh, that's, like most that's of the hardcore. year. Yeah. yeah. So the, but that's when Sean and I started doing the Watkins family hour because, okay. We had a week off and we just kind of wanted to play songs for fun that we didn't have to worry about recording ever or, or messing up. We could just play our favorite Skaggs and Rice songs and our favorite, um, you know, Dolly Parton or, <laughs> or Michael Jackson songs or whatever it is and, and, and just play it for fun. And we, we, we started doing this monthly gig in the gaps between Nickel Creek touring. And it was so nourishing because it, mm, it really allowed us and like speaking for myself, it, it allowed me to um, to figure out what kind of songs I wanted to sing when I wasn't singing Nickel Creek songs, you know. Right, um, and that was a that was a sort of a non pressure situation. There wasn't like any pressure on you guys to fill the room necessarily. I'm sure you did. No, anyway, man, but. no, we did. Like it was it was incredible. Flanagan, who owns Largo, we'd started um, going to see shows at Largo, and Flanny said to Sean and I, like, you guys should do a show here once a month. You call it the Watkins Family Hour. I don't care if 17 people show up, you should do it. <laughs> and, and so we just thought, okay. And, yeah. and we started playing and like, I mean, Gabe Witcher came down and played fiddle a bunch. Um, we would, uh, in, like af- after a while, other musicians who we'd met at Largo or around town, we would, we would get them to play, um, come up and sing a couple of songs with us. And, and, um, it was so low pressure and I'd never done that before. I'd never done low pressure gigs before. And, right. and it was like incredibly freeing and joyful. And uh, I was listening to a ton of Nico Case's Furnace Room Lullabies record at the time. And so yeah. I was, you know, enjoying seeing some of those songs uh, and, uh, and just singing in ways that and that was the first time that I felt the, the like sing to the back of the room kind of thing because it's a really short room. It was yep. bad. It was a bad sound system at the time in this little this club. This is the old, the old club. The old club, yeah. It was like a dinner yeah. club. Yeah, and yeah, uh, I used to go there a lot. It's it was it was wonderful. It was 
I can't put a value on, on, on its importance to, to my development. Um, and did that, did that become something that you eventually were looking forward to more even than playing with Nickel Creek? Like it was kind of freeing in that way? Yeah. I mean, well, Nickel Creek at that time was the normal thing. So, um, this was right. the new exciting thing. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. but, uh, but you know, and it was, Nickel Creek was a day job, uh, um, and, and <laughs> the family hour was sort the of the, job. it was a fun day job. It was a great day yeah. job and yeah, it, no and it let us, uh, you know, do this other thing and not have to have pressure. You know, yeah. if we didn't have the day job, that would be a lot more pressure on the family hour. But right. um, but because we had the day job, we got to just, you know, this was like our garage band. And yeah. um, and then, you know, eventually, you know, when we did decide to put Nickel Creek on the shelf, we um, it was it was just good timing for all of us mm-hmm. and and made sense. So it, it kind of it was coming from all sides. Everybody was like, yeah, it's time to try some other things and take a break from this? Well, once it was initiated, it, it, it did. It, it, felt, it felt very right, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's a big decision, obviously. And, and it affects more than just you guys directly because there's a lot of people involved in, in that world to make that all happen, right? Yeah, that's something we took very seriously. Um, yeah. We had, we had a, a, a crew that we were traveling yeah. with and we had, you know, some people that were, that, you know, were, relying on on the work that they got from our band and and also we wanted to kind of celebrate celebrate with with the people who had you know paid tickets bought, bought tickets to come see us all these years so course, we did yeah. our, our farewell for now tour which which ended up being <laughs> really fun because we um we got to go out with a bunch of of fun uh musicians who just you know yeah were willing to go out with us so how, how long into that realization that you're going to take a break from nickel creek did it take you to switch gears and come up with your first re- solo record? I had already started recording before before uh, we we had that conversation, and and I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. I, I had made I'd recorded like ten songs in different styles. I recorded uh, a couple things that were kind of like a little heavier. Uh, heavy for, for me at the time. Like it was like mm-hmm. more ruckus. Um, yeah. and then there were some, uh, like there's like a, a few songs that I recorded in like a much more of like a straight country, not radio yeah. country, but like, you know, pedal steel country vibes. Yeah, and totally. then, um, and then some like, you know, more sweet acoustic stuff. And they, it felt very con- contrasting to me because I, and I felt for some reason, like I had to pick a costume to wear and okay. and what if I picked like the wrong to, outfit? Right. Yeah, like like what if I <laughs> what if I decide to, that I'm just going to do this and define myself, and then I'm stuck with that for the rest of my life? And it felt so um, terrifying. And, uh, and uh. like, what if you guess wrong? And and all of a sudden, this thing that I like now, I'm tired of in three months. And and so I was I was at that point, And then we had the conversation about putting Nickel Creek on the shelf, and I thought well, I guess I should really figure this out. And um, we were on tour in, in England and we played the Cambridge Folk Festival and um, John Paul Jones, who we had toured with before uh, in a project called Mutual Admiration Society. Yeah. Um, was he playing mandolin in that in that? He played bass in that group. Did he? Okay. Yeah, so it was, it was Sean and Chris and I and then Glenn Phillips sang and played guitar and Pete Thomas from... <laughs> Elvis Costello's band um, played drums and John Paul Jones played bass and it was stupid. There's something that you won't show 
waiting where the light goes Maybe anywhere the wind blows It's all worth waiting for Pete's like, this is a rhythm section from hell. And <laughs> and it was a, like three uh, bluegrass or like Southern California kids and uh, like the Santa Barbara dude, Glenn Phillips. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and then Pete Thomas and John Paul Jones. Cheapers. It, it was that like is... two weeks maybe we did, but it was, it was so much fun and crazy and I, I can't believe bet. it happened. But anyway, so John came to see us at the Cambridge Folk Festival and after our set... He just told me, he said, you should do a solo record and I want to produce it. And Really? Yeah. That's outrageous. It is. And uh, I, I kind of thought it was just a compliment and, and that I didn't really take it too seriously. And then he, we stayed in touch and started talking. So he, I mean, he's obviously a huge fan of bluegrass and stuff like that. And, yeah. and, and um, you guys probably had, you know, a lot in common musically. Uh, how was that whole experience with working with him in the studio as a producer? It was lovely. I mean, he made yeah. me feel like. Uh, had he produced much? Like, I can't think of it. Yeah. Of what John Paul Jones had produced. He had produced the um, Butthole Surfers, I think. Oh, okay, yeah. I, I mean, I think I could be wrong about that. Uh-huh. Uh huh. But he produced some other people, maybe Devanger Bernhardt. He produced, um, and I'm sure he's he's actually. I'm probably I'm fairly confident he's produced things that he's never been credited for. Right. Uh, like most producers, but yeah. um, like probably it, a few Led Zeppelin records. Yeah, totally. <laughs> but it wasn't. Guys, come on, we got to do it again. Um, <laughs> I, I, that wasn't really part of my concern. I wasn't thinking about like you know balancing a budget and li- you know like figuring out the time for everything, uh, like yeah. the practicalities of producing. I was, I was just thinking um, about musicianship and about yeah. The kind of of person who who I can trust, and yeah. and that way, and um, and he, he was, was that guy. He was really like just a prince to work with, and made me feel so special. Uh, he made me feel like a star, in, in a way that yeah. I hadn't ever experienced. Like I I hadn't ever felt like that before. I hadn't felt like like um like the featured. I because mm-hmm. I I'd been in a in an equal parts band, you know, and and right, so that right. wasn't appropriate before, and yeah. and it really um, was a wonderful boost, and I that record I think of as sort of me establishing my home base. I, I ended up choosing songs that I loved and that 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 I felt very comfortable with and mm-hmm. um, and writing I was like half almost half originals and half covers right. and um, and the band the people who were on it were all just people who I felt like were really rooting for me 
and yeah. you know friends and did John, did John Paul Jones play bass on it or was he just producing he played uh organ on something and he, I think he played oh, cool. bass on on one or two okay uh and he sings harmony on on a couple songs he sings harmony oh, on he all this time and oh, okay. um yeah he's um so he's he's definitely on it it was it was a, a really lovely process and I you know I don't feel like that album is challenging in any way to listen to I feel like it's it's very comfortable in that it, it, it just is. it just kind of plays down. Um, yeah. But I, I know that that's what I needed at that point. I needed to, like I said, establish this kind of home base starting yeah. place. And did you did you record it in California or was it in half in California, in, half in Nashville? That's the record that's got the Hartford tune on it, right? Long yeah. off summer days. Yeah. yeah, I love that's a great version of that too. I love that. Thank song. you. Uh, that's Dave Rawlings playing drum and Al, and uh, Gillian Welch playing electric guitar. <laughs> Really? Yeah. In general, was was were those sessions done fairly live and off the floor, or were you working yeah. in the studio? Yeah, yeah. Most of those were were ensemble performances. Okay. Yeah, like in in the room. Yeah, it sounds that way. Like it, I mean, it's got some produced elements to it, but it does sound like you're you're a band playing together, which is cool. Really cool. I think on that one. Thanks. And it's kind of, and it's kind of different from the next one. Um, <laughs> it's very different. Tell me just a little bit about making that. So that sun midnight sun was produced by Blake Mills, who, uh, I actually met Blake when he was 11 or 12 or something, but, um, he, he was coming into his own probably as a producer at that point, but hadn't like, hadn't made huge records at that point like he has now. I don't think um, he had officially produced anything by himself at that point. He had like oh, okay. maybe co I think he had co-produced with two or three people, with Tony Berg and maybe somebody else um yeah. uh a couple of things. And And was he a Largo connection as well or how did you come to to hook up with Blake? I met Blake through Ben Montench. He Ben Montench was doing these um house gatherings at his house pretty regularly house gatherings yeah. at his house that's pretty self-explanatory <laughs> um pretty regularly right it's the best <laughs> uh on sundays for a long while he was having these gatherings and um and that's where i met blake and i was really impressed by how low he would turn his amp down <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and uh that was really nice and then also uh you know, I, I just kind of I noticed that he kind of became an anchor for just house jams. It felt like people were playing off of him, uh-huh. and and I thought, oh, that's interesting. That that's what everyone's instincts are, and yeah. um, and I really, you know, somebody brought up, pointed out to me how well he he accompanies vocalists, and and yeah. I I yeah. started noticing that a lot, and I thought, well, you know, I want to I wanted I knew I wanted to work with a producer who wasn't a real producer. Um, oh, who didn't have like a style already or like a, yeah. I've always, I've always wanted that. I've never really wanted to work with producers who, Take I over. mean, yeah, I mean, Eric Valentine's, you know, obviously an established producer, 
But like, mm-hmm. I've never wanted to work with somebody who it sounds like, oh, this is this is this producer's right. record. Yeah. Um, yeah. It did kind of turn out that way, though, in hindsight, because I, I know that Blake plays on. He plays so many instruments. It does. He, he, it definitely sounds like a Blake Mills record in some mm-hmm. ways, but it was a wonderful contrast at the time. Yeah. Style, like as far as the process of, uh, I was like, I wanted to step off that home base. I wanted to venture into less of a known space. some kind of similarity between the first record and this new record and so mm-hmm. I wanted Sean to play guitar as well as Blake so that it would be a little bit of a link yeah. uh, and not sound like a completely different band and right. um, since Sean played guitar on I think almost all of the first record I wanted that to be a consistency and yeah. um, and I'm really glad I did about that and also mm-hmm. oh but but as far as like the in-studio process, to, to build something vertically so much, like as far as overdubs, that was pretty new for me. And I really loved the freedom of, of, of that and was, was trying to not worry about how to replicate, but instead just explore and have, uh, and see what the songs became. Can you give me an example of a song on that record that really sticks out for, for some, for that process? There's a song on, on it called, um, impossible. Mm-hmm. I wanted it to sound like a Mexican waltz. And so okay. we, you know, we, I think there's, you can barely hear it, but at some point there's like a Spanish speaking radio station happening in there that we like recorded off the radio and, oh, and cool. we wanted to, I mean, it, it doesn't, I, I kind of wish that it sounded a little bit more, a little bit more Mexican, but it, it, uh, it, <laughs> it was trying to, I was trying to get this sort of easier said than done. Right. Yeah. Right. For a couple of gringos. <laughs> um, <laughs> So I, t- t- tell me about when, when you talk about something vertically, do you mean like um, rather than coming at it from a band, like yeah. like doing track by track and stacking it and experimenting? I think of it as like time. stacking overdubs. That's that's what uh-huh. I mean by vertically, yeah. Was it all kind of done like that where where you weren't, weren't necessarily playing, performing yeah. the song mm-hmm. ever together? Okay. We, we, we recorded it at Tony Berg's uh, studio, which is uh, a really cool spot. But it's it's a pretty tight room, and so mm-hmm. uh, Blake and Sean would maybe record their parts either together or they would arrange them together, and then and then we record okay. them. Or or maybe there's like a maybe there was a loop created, a human created loop. Yeah, um, yeah. So maybe you have a you know a click track and and you play some kind of wobbly drum thing to it, and then yeah. you just listen to the wobbly drum thing, and it kind of helps it sound more human. Yeah, um, wobbly drums. It's and good, good thing to track to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, that would often be the foundation, and then there would be the guitar parts, Sean and Blake, and then I would, um, and then we would we would build up from there sonically with uh, interesting noises and guitars and and um, was that process always successful? Like, did you have a because of the way of doing that? Did you have a lot of outtakes that you didn't use, or was everything? Were you able to? 
get that together and working for everything. Well, there were only the outtakes because everything was overdubbed. Right. So, I mean, it, we ended up, I, I think we ended up using all the songs that we recorded. And okay. um, Was it long? Like, did you spend a long time on that record? A month. Okay. So yeah, so not, not 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 nothing. Not outrageous, but not yeah. nothing, but not outrageous. Yeah, and yeah. it's not. I feel like that's not crazy for an overdub record. That feels like that's kind of normal, and that's including mixing. Um, okay, yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, the the there was uh, I really loved um, how you're the one I love came out on that record, uh-huh. which was a okay. duet with me and Fiona Apple. Um, right. We were I'd always wanted to sing that with her. Uh, she'd been coming to the family hour a lot, and yeah. Um, we hadn't, we just hadn't really gotten a chance to work up anything new in a while, but I'd kind of had that on the burner for an, about a year that I wanted to sing that Everly Brothers song with her. Yeah. And, and make it a little bit more obsessive and a little bit more, right. uh, stalkery. <laughs> yeah, totally. And, um, it really works in that context when you put it in a new light like that. It was so fun to record and that we recorded together facing each other. She's not playing piano or anything on that. She's just singing on it. Yeah, she's just singing, and she sings on "Take Up Your Spade" too, the, which is kind yeah. of like a, a curtain call for all the people who were on the rest of the record. Yeah, well, it's a it's a wicked record, and but yeah, it's sort of a departure from from a lot of the other stuff you've done, which is good. Yeah. So, where do things stand with with Nickel Creek now? Is that something that you think you'll revisit again, or not necessarily, or is it something that comes up ever? Yeah, I think we absolutely will revisit it. Um, okay. It's the kind of thing that, like, we we love, we love that band. Um, mm-hmm. I I don't think it will ever be the primary focus for for all of us again. It's right. it's it's kind of in rotation with the other projects that we're all yeah. That so we're it feels all doing. like something you could come back to throughout your life at various points and maybe do something interesting and walk away again. Exactly. You know, I think. Yeah. Um, I, I I see us writing together and and doing another record in the in the mm-hmm. future. It's it's a little bit at the mercy of logistics. Um, right. Yeah. Speaking for myself, I'm pretty booked through 2019. Uh huh. And and uh, I know I'm not alone in that. I know that that the guys have have things on the on the on the book. So um, yeah. But we we love each other, and we love. I think we all feel very grateful that um, that we didn't push that our reliance on that band so far as to become resentful of its place in our lives. And yeah, like it seems like you, you got out of it at kind of the perfect time where things could have really gone south or something. Yeah. I think that, I I think that a lot of bands and Nickel Creek was certainly this way. Um, you can feel what's happening off stage on stage and, mm-hmm. and it's very difficult to separate personal from musical. And, um, I, I can't imagine a scenario where we would be, you know, frustrated. Like our, our relationship is, is, uh, how do how can I say it? Like, um, no, I don't want to play with anyone that I'm mad at. <laughs> yeah, that's, and, that makes sense. And, you know, yeah, I think I that like, you know, tensions get really tough when, when you're yeah. 
especially if everyone's heart isn't completely in it. And um, totally, it like last time we got together was it a couple years ago, and we made a record in eleven days, like the a dotted line record, which was our our fourth record. We did it with Eric Valentine, and it was we recorded it in eleven days, yeah, front to back, which yeah. was incredible for us because we had never made a record in less than like two months. And okay. um, we loved the process. It's our favorite record by far. Oh, and really? it was a great process. And, and so, and touring, we got in it and we did 70 dates and yeah. we worked really hard. And then we were like, this is awesome. Great. See you, see you around, you know, and, <laughs> and, um, and that's, that suits us right now. We'll look at my And what about solo records? Are you thinking about your next one yet or not yet? My next project is going to be with um, uh, my friends Aoife O'Donovan and Sarah Jarose. Oh, cool. Uh, we have a band called I'm With Her, and yeah. we, we named it before the primary season. And okay. um, we are... Uh, I, I, <laughs> somebody mentioned on social media, I said something about the band, and they're like, oh, I'm so tired of politics. And I'm like, me too. <laughs> um but we uh, we are going to be out uh, this summer yeah. on tour with Punch Brothers and uh, Julian Lodge, oh, cool. just like a few weeks. But we're gonna um, we're gonna be touring next year and um, and making and, a record. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna put out some music and we're gonna. That's quite the powerhouse trio. We really enjoy this band. It's 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 a really fun band to be in, and mm-hmm. uh, I'm looking forward to it. So I'm also happy that I get to switch off from being a solo artist and get back to being a band, a band member. member. Yeah, yeah. I, I like to do it after every solo record. I really look forward to collaborative things because mm. I don't want... It's totally different, isn't it? It's totally different. And um, I really get tired of running the show myself. Yeah. I get tired yeah. of my own songs. I get tired of like <sighs> my own vision. And I just want to like play fiddle in a band. And, right. Um, and... I I uh, I'm really glad that this time the collaboration that I get to do is with with these girls. Yeah. Um, so did that one come about as somebody's idea in particular, or was it just like one of those things that fell in all your laps? Just we uh, we've known each other for a long time. We've been friends. We were at a festival a few years ago and found ourselves. We were like it was one of those workshops where they set you know put a bunch of people together on a stage and right and. Um, we asked if anyone wanted to get together and practice, like maybe learn, work up a song so we have something prepared for this workshop. And um, Sarah and Eva and I were the only ones who showed up to the rehearsal. <laughs> and so we, um, we, you know, worked up a couple harmony parts to some standard choruses and, uh, mm-hmm. and we really enjoyed it. And then we played at the workshop and that was fun and we did another thing that night. And after the festival, we texted each other it was like after a date or something, after a first date. We just like right. that. That was really. That was awesome. That was fun, right? I I had a good uh-huh. time. Did you? <laughs> uh, maybe want to do it again sometime. Yeah. And yeah. 
and we were totally into it. And, and all of us, uh, we basically, we just kind of kept feeling each other out and realizing that, mm-hmm. that everyone wasn't just being nice and that we actually <laughs> really loved it. And, right. um, since then we've, we've toured, we went to the UK for three weeks in a station wagon, just the three of us and toured around and, and, nice. and have done, you know, some, some things here or there. And, but it's going to be a thing for a, for a, for a little yeah, while. Yeah. I'm looking forward to digging into it. Yeah. So we'll look forward to that. And, and, um, I, I see that you're playing uh, at the Ryman at some point too, right? This year? Yeah, I am going to open for the um, String Dusters. Oh, that's what that is. Okay, that's exciting. Yeah. I r- really appreciate you taking the time to to tell me some of that stuff. And absolutely, thank you for uh, thanks for wanting to speak to me. I love the podcast. Oh, thanks. Well, I hope to uh, run into you one of these days. Maybe see you at a festival or something like that. That'd and, be great. Um, well, thanks so much, Sarah. All right. Bye, Steve. All right, thanks so much for listening, everybody. That was great to talk to Sarah and get the skinny on what what's going on in, in her life and career. And thank you for listening and joining me. We'll be back next week, next Wednesday, for another gripping episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Hope to see you then. Take it easy. Makers and Soul Shakers is recorded at the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. Please visit us online at www.stevedawson.ca. Thanks always to Jeremy Holmes in Vancouver for his help with research and to Michael Glusak for editing, music placement, and mixing. <laughs>